0: Chloe. How are you?
1: I'm good. How are you?
0: I'm great. I'm so glad you're here with me today. You know, we're just getting to know each other. It's not like some of my other guests is like, oh, we've known each other for years. We have talked to each other like twice. (laughs) (laughs) We have. (laughs) (laughs) But they've been fantastic conversations, and I thought, oh, I really, really want to have a conversation that other folks can hear about the work you're doing because it's so meaningful and impactful. So can you talk a little bit about what it is that you do related to community-based anti-violence work?
1: Sure. So I work in criminal justice reform, and I am able to provide training and technical assistance to anti-violence focused organizations that work within community throughout the five boroughs of New York City and nationally. And it's just something that I derive so much pleasure in doing and being able to share my you know, limited expertise, having been a former prosecutor, and understanding of the criminal justice system, and then figuring out how we can take some of the alternatives and divergent programming and all the other things that we've learned about how you, you know, address poverty, and combine that with anti-violence work in order to, I don't know, stem the course of violence and provide outlets that actually lead to meaningful change in people's lives.
0: So how did you go from being a prosecutor to doing
1: <laughs> this kind of work.
0: Not really. Right. Is, is it a stretch? I, you know, I know nothing about that sort of world, but is it a
1: stretch? Yeah, yeah, that's definitely a stretch. It always leads to why I became a prosecutor in the first place, right? And I was definitely one of those law students who thought that they could create change from the inside. I quickly learned that that's a lot more difficult than it seems, especially if the change you're trying to create is substantially more progressive than office policies are at the time. Mm -hmm. And so while I was prosecuting, I ended up getting married and having babies and giving birth to small brown boys. Um, will change the way you look at the people that are accused of crimes across from you. Mm -hmm. And so I started wondering how I can utilize my skills and expertise in a preventative way to avoid having more Black and brown men enter the system. And so that's how I ended up leaving prosecution to go into criminal justice reform.
0: So criminal justice reform is kind of at the we would say, you know, from a, on an intercept model, intercept zero, meaning it's the where you want to start versus kind of when somebody's already on their way um, into possibly ending up in a criminal justice system or criminal justice having criminal justice interaction. So um, you really went from helping people at towards the end of that kind of pipeline to really doing stuff at the beginning of the pipeline to change.
1: Yeah, I think I had a little bit more of like a prog- a slow progression to prevention, mm-hmm. right? Um, when I left the prosecutor's office, I started working for a operating project that did alternative to incarceration and diversion programming. And so that if, true prevention is phase zero Then I might've been at like maybe phase five, right? (laughs) Um, You leave and then you're like, okay, well, you've now been arrested. What can I do to help you in this moment to avoid incarceration, Mm -hmm. right? And then I slowly progress to the place where I am currently where I'm saying, okay, you are not criminal justice involved as of yet. So how can we do something, provide you with something in order to avoid your ending up with criminal involvement, and for me in particular, uh, I have a interest in figuring out how you can stop young black and brown men from committing violent crimes. And the reason I focus on those are because of they're they're the ones that always end up in the um, longer, more punitive sentences. Yeah. And so, how do we avoid you being in prison for yeah. the majority of your formative adult life? Mm-hmm. How can we do that? Right. Um, And then also thinking about brain science and and the decisions that we make when we don't have frontal lobes that are fully developed Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. don't have real control over ourselves and our emotions or figuring stuff out. And, you know, our living conditions may be what they are. How do we provide supports in those moments so that decisions can be made that don't end a in the loss of someone else's life? or B, in the loss of your own life, or C, in the loss of your life due to, or the loss of your freedom due to incarceration. So how do we avoid those?
0: Wow. So when we talk about anti-violence work, again, this is not work that in in general that least I know of. And, you know, I'm not the queen of everything, and nor do I know everything. So I'm still learning. (laughs) But, um, you know, I have not really um, heard a lot about anti-violence work in the intersection of of mental health. So that's why I might not know a lot about it. But it seems to be a natural kind of fit in a way. I mean, in, in mental health, we try to really separate violence from mental health, because there's a, you know, kind of a belief that, mentally ill, they're violent. Quote, unquote, I do not use those terms mentally ill and or violent together in that way. But that is sort of the social belief that, you know, a lot of people who are violent have mental illness. Yet we always say that people with mental illness tend to be victims of violence. So we try to keep those conversations separate. But I think, you know, we've been talking about where is the intersection of anti-violence work and um, supporting mental well-being. So we'll put it that way. So when people are doing anti-violence work, what does that actually look like on the ground?
1: It can look many different ways, mm-hmm. right? And so most people when thinking about anti-violence work are looking at something like the Cure Violence Model, which involves having credible messengers who are on the ground trying to change you know, community norms around violence and, and gangs, and trying to mediate conflicts in order to avoid escalations that could lead to gun violence, right? Mm -hmm. They also respond to incidents of gun violence, have shooting responses to denounce violence, um, and then work with participants to provide them with job training, educational support, all the things that you would need to kind of step away from a life of street violence. That's one way of looking at approach to gun violence. Mm -hmm. I think for me, what's important is to step back and look at issues from a holistic standpoint. So wanting to look at it and say, okay, street violence, gang involvement, gun violence is all the byproduct of poverty, as are so many other things. And so when you step back and look at it, what are the other factors that are affecting or causing folks to be Street involved, street adjacent, gang involved, gang adjacent, etc. What are those things? And when I, the intersection between gun violence and um, mental health that I've observed in my work is related to trauma. And I feel like if you are looking at a map and you're looking at, you know, the areas where gun violence is most prevalent, you're also looking at urban communities where poverty is present, where poor housing conditions are present, where food deserts are present, where lack of decent education is present, lack of health care, lack of all of the things that allow you to thrive as an individual. Mm -hmm. And when you're living in these communities where there is so much lacking, the one thing that is pervasive is trauma. There's trauma associated with hearing gunshots. There's trauma associated with learning about, you know, your friend that has been, murdered or having to walk by this the place that your father was murdered on a daily basis, there is trauma associated with that that doesn't get addressed, mm-hmm. right? And then that trauma can turn into other things, right? It can yep. turn into, I'll use my quotes as well, mental illness, right? It can turn into <laughs> right. whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Um, it can turn into anger. It can turn into depression. It can turn into all of these other Mental health concerns that affect all other areas of your life. Right. Right. And so I think that there isn't much attention paid to that intersection. There's this constant kind of cycle of trauma that's happening that isn't being addressed. And it affects communities and it affects the people that are working to change things. And so I think that for me, it's become a point of. Wanting to highlight that this trauma, this community level trauma, this individual level trauma, these organizationally um, imposed traumas, right, because you're imposing the trauma on someone, you're asking someone to come do this job and be traumatized. Like that's Mm -hmm. what you're asking. Mm. So let's recognize that and let's find ways to support communities, support individuals and support our staff so that when you're doing this job, you can be healthy, too. And I think that that's that's the part that I don't see a lot of support for and I don't see a lot of discussion around. Yeah. And it's almost like a given that, like, yeah, we're going to use your experience, which is traumatic. We're not going to help you deal with that experience, but we're going to ask you to use it. Yes. (laughs) Yes. To go be traumatized. (laughs) Right, right, right. We're going to ask you to to
0: re-traumatize yourself to help people who are in trauma, but none of us are addressing the trauma and support so that we can all be well. What are some things that we should be doing for our credible messengers and our communities of family members and community members who are affected and and are traumatized themselves?
1: Yeah, I think we started asking them, Mm. right? Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like when we're in these positions where we have all of this information we want to instantly like figure out what are we going to do for you? Right. Mm -hmm. Without asking, like, what do you want us to do?
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So if
1: you're hiring a credible messenger, ask that person, how can I support you as things are happening in community, as you're doing your job, as things come up, what is the way that I can support you? Mm -hmm. Right. Because everybody receives support differently. That's why there are different modalities for therapy and different ways that you can, you know, heal yourself. Mm -hmm. There's plenty of different ways. Right. And Mm -hmm. so assuming, you know, a day off (laughs) is one is not it. Right. Yes. Yes. And oftentimes that's what supervisors do. Take a day off. Don't worry about it. Oh, that was really hard. Take a day off. Come back next week. You'll be great. And it's like, Take a day off
0: to like have it all in your head and
1: kind of play it out of your head over and over (laughs) and over over again.
0: Yeah, that was really helpful. Thank you so much. No, thank you, right? Exactly. Especially
1: when you're hiring folks to do these jobs and they're from these communities. Like there's no day off. Yes. Stop thinking there's a day off because everyone doesn't leave their job and go somewhere else. Yes. They may leave their job and go right back to the same neighborhood and Mm -hmm. hang out with the same people Mm -hmm. and it's, it's their life. And so ask how you can support,
0: Uh uh right?
1: Don't assume, ask, and then actually do what they're telling you. Yes, yes,
0: right. (laughs) Uh, Yes. Listen, and then activate versus listen and say, thank you very much and go back and do as you were doing before.
1: Exactly.
0: Are you seeing that um, as people are doing some of the cure violence work or um, any similar type of work that they're, is more attention to people's addressing their own um, re-traumatization and or their mental health and well-being? Or is that just at the beginning? We just at the beginning of looking at supporting folks?
1: I think we're at the beginning of looking at supporting folks. I think there's a lot more conversation around the need to support people. Mm -hmm. I think it's tricky, right? When you're looking at funding. Yeah. Um, uh, If you run an organization that does anti-violence work, funders want to see that all of your dollars go to less shootings. Mm-hmm. How did your dollars reduce the number of shootings? Mm-hmm. And so it can be hard to say, well, 90% of my dollars went to reducing shootings and 10% went to ensuring that my staff were okay. Right? Wow, really? That can be even more difficult to do when your staff are getting paid $5. Right? So like, okay. how, like what is Okay right? Like yeah. what is okay? What does that mean? Yeah. Right. Well, you want all of my dollars to go towards this, but my staff member makes $43,000 a year in New York city. That is not a livable wage. Yes. Right. Period. Right. Full stop. Not a livable wage. Right. Right. Yes. So it's almost like you're perpetuating person- their problem look at that. Right. And
0: it, <laughs> I mean, if the so idea, why? the idea is that you're addressing poverty because in a way you're, you you want to also address poverty because if we yeah. don't address that bottom line, this is just going to be a cycle. At least what I'm hearing, it's going to be a cycle that is repetitive and you, uh, it's almost like a hamster in a wheel. You're trying to get out off of that wheel. But if you're going to pay people something that's not a livable wage then we're right back where we started and we're in that hamster wheel. You're reducing violence while you're perpetuating poverty. What the hey? That doesn't make sense.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Just being unapologetic
0: about it. Just saying.
1: Yeah. And it doesn't make sense. So we're going to pay you $5. We're going to give you a job that doesn't really provide a lot of lines of promotion upward. And then on top of all of it, what supports do I have to provide you really? Wow! Wow! Right, and that's really difficult. Wow! So, what do we? Right? Mean so, to- how, how do you do that? How do you? How do you prioritize that? Yeah. How do you get? And then, and and so here's here I go being unapologetic, right? Uh, yes. So, how do you explain to funders who don't come from communities where gun violence is prevalent that don't understand how poverty affects every single part of your life that Don't prioritize solving the poverty issue because that's not what we do here in this country. How do we tell you we need more funding to be able to provide living wages and supports and whatever therapeutic, whatever is necessary, not only for our staff, but for the participants that walk into our door? How do we prioritize that?
0: Right, right.
1: And then... How do I keep my funding when shootings increase, even though you're giving me the money to do all of that?
0: Right. Wow.
1: How do I do that? Right. Right? When you, when you connect the dollars to the rates of shootings, you're never going to be able to speak the same language.
0: So it's almost as if the outcome, the outcome isn't, isn't, it's not a direct correlation between I'm funding reducing shootings, because that's at the, I would say the top, somewhere at the top of the iceberg or the middle of the iceberg. You really have to get underneath that iceberg where, again, the Titanic hit what was underneath, right? <laughs> A little late by the time they saw the top, right? And so we right. tend to be more towards the top versus going that un- going to the um, unseen, and I would say more difficult stuff, like going below and seeing an iceberg. Well, I guess it's kind of easy nowadays with sonar, but let's pretend. <laughs> But this is not about sonar, clearly. But I think um, you know, this, is a really, this is really um, fundamental for our um, you know, foundations and funders to understand more uh, the complexity of the issue and what is it they're really solving for to get the end result of reduced gun violence.
1: Exactly, exactly. We can focus on the actual act if we want to. We've been doing that for the better part of 20 plus years. We can mm-hmm. focus on the, the actual shooting. Let's focus on that. Or we can take it 50 steps back and focus on housing conditions, neighborhood conditions, food, employment, mm-hmm. education, social services. We can focus on all of the things that get you to pick the gun up. Yes. Or we can just focus in the moment. Focus yep. on whatever issue, caught, whatever beef, quote unquote, mm-hmm. caused you to yes. pick this gun up. We yeah. can focus on that.
0: Yeah, right. So it's like social determinants of health clearly are playing out here. Okay, let's (laughs) just write. And we, you know, we also say social determinants of mental health, because they're the same social determinants of health. But we want people to understand too how it affects your mental health and well being. And I think the other thing is this gives new a new way to think about it is social determinants, but, you know, the, the, the word of the day, of course, is intersectionality. And generally when we talk about intersectionality, we're talking about identity, you know, but, but I think here it's really the complexity and intersectionality of all of those social determinants of health that may be driving um, what ends up being again, that surface thing, the violence, like, like you say, we can focus on the beef, but the beef isn't important. It's um, everything that's, um, around the beef (laughs) Uh, uh, that really is um, uh, needs to be addressed. And I think in our communities of color, there are a couple of things I think about. One is who's, who's the credible person that they're talking to about what's going on in, in their life. If they're struggling with a mental health condition, I know for me in particular, I didn't have access to somebody who had been through what I'd been through who looked like me. Um, There were lots of peers around, um, but I, I never met a peer who looked like me until much further on in sort of my recovery journey. And it made such a difference to talk to, she's much older than myself and that's okay, but it was really important to see, you know, a Black woman who was in a leadership role, who had talked about her recovery journey. And me hearing that, going, okay, wait a minute, seeing something completely different that validates that recovery is real for people who look like me. And I, I wonder in our, our communities of color how often um, folks get access to either providers who look like them—psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers. Two percent of psychiatrists are uh, black. I think maybe a little bit a little bit more or around the same uh, psychologists are you know Latino or Latinx. And then when you get into social work, it might be 5%, again, which is not a huge number. That doesn't equal who we are in the population, right? So, um, you know, I think there's still work we can do too in that, how do we solve some of the complexity issues around ensuring that there are providers and services that are culturally, I don't like the word competent, what culturally, I like culturally aligned. That they're aligned right. with who I am um, as a person of color. And um, linguistically also um, aligned with with folks.
1: Yeah, I think I think you're you're raising an interesting an interesting question, and I think that it leads to a lot of conversation around like these cultural stigmas that have been grandfathered down, right? Like it's easier to talk about a psychologist with someone who's black or brown than a psychiatrist, right? Like trigger words, but that's not what I need. Right. Or it's easier to talk about trauma in some communities than it is to talk about depression. But I think very base level, I think it's, this is an opportunity for younger generations who are a lot more open to have these conversations to kind of connect with older generations. Right. Say Um, more about that. Whoa. yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So like, using myself, for example, when I had my, after having my first child, I suffered from really horrible postpartum depression. Mm -hmm. And in talking to my mom and my aunts about how I was feeling, everybody was like, that's that's for white people. That's not you. Don't have that. Like, mm. keep suckling that baby and keep it moving, right? Like, <laughs> keep, it, like, keep it moving, girl. What you, you talking about? It's like, what like, you talking about? What? Right? Let me let me find out. You being a lazy mom, like you oh, <laughs> go no, complaining. Yes, and it yes. was like, no, oh, this is a real thing. And I too didn't see other people that looked like me. Mm-hmm. with that experience or that I could talk to and my therapist at the time was the white woman. And she, you know, could talk to me about postpartum depression, but so much from her experience as a therapist, but there was no real connection to it. And it took, I will say until I had my second child. So two and a half years before I met someone who looked like me, that was also suffering from postpartum depression. Wow. And in that time, a few of women in our friend circle ended up having children. And I want to say probably about like 70% of us ended up having postpartum depression at the same time. Wow. And that's when I was like, Oh, people need to know like, and if we weren't open about how we felt with each other, we would have all just been suffering <laughs> yes. in silence. Yes. Like why would I suffer in silence Yeah, when I now have this beautiful community of women that we can, talk to and, and work with. And it was just such a easier experience. Uh uh It was just easier to be kinder to myself, to be gentler with myself Mm -hmm. and a better understanding of how to do things, options on what I could do, teas I should drink, music I should listen to, just everything. If we could find a way and, you know, we're, we were all the same age, relatively the same age, after that experience, we could find a way to bring that back. So I was then able to talk to my mother about her birthing experience. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't really care about that before. But at this point, I was like, I want to explore a little bit more and learning about what she was going through after having me. And I was able to say, Mom, I think you had postpartum depression mm-hmm. and like really be able to talk to her about it. Mm-hmm. And, and that kind of bridges a gap and removes the stigma That allows for a different type of bonding and a different type of healing. And so I think if we are able to, in in, in the anti-violence world, if we're able to have conversations on the ground with the youth where they're recognizing that what is happening is this cyclical trauma that keeps affecting them and how there are conversations that can be had with you know, the next generation up or the generation, you know, above them Mm -hmm. around this as a way to bridge and create healing. Right. Because I think sometimes like, you know, (laughs) you're on the street and you're having community conversations with folks and you're, you know, someone's aunties on the bench talking about like, I just want these kids get the fuck off of my whatever. Right. Excuse my language. And I'm just like, well, ma'am, they're there because, all of these other things have happened, and they don't have yeah. anywhere to like. Yeah. Where do you want them to go?
0: We used to have places. Like, let's, to have go. Conversa-
1: yeah, let's have a conversation. Yeah, let's have a conversation about this. Like, why? Mm-hmm. Like, let's bridge this a little bit.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Or, or so and so stormed off because they're whatever, and I'm just like, you know, that's a trauma reaction.
0: Yes. So yes. Like, let's
1: have a conversation about that, right? right? right. And then that changes the, the dynamic, right? What being you mean trauma reaction? What's that, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and then you, exactly. can <laughs> exactly. yeah, right? Yeah. you can have a conversation, right? You can have a conversation. And then once you start to be able to pick up on those things, the way you respond is different. different and that's what right. allows for community to heal itself and care for itself again. I think that we, we lost that along the yes. way. Yes,
0: yeah, we did. I think that again is so powerful to think about conversations around what it feels like. Sometimes we need that so that it's it's still, there's still so much stigma about, you know, mental illness and mental health in our communities that uh, sometimes we need to articulate what's happening with us in a different yeah. way, even though it's supporting our mental and well-being.
1: And I like the idea of like, just breaking down science behind it. I love when I have to like train a group of folks and just remind everybody that like, you didn't have a frontal lobe until you were like 25 let's say 30 right think about the decisions that you made like why is that any different for someone that's young now mm-hmm. like why are you like why would you judge the youth now differently than you would have wanted yourself to have been judged yeah and i think in yeah. hindsight everybody likes to say like oh i was a great person but like no yes. <laughs> no let's just be honest no right and so like breaking stuff down like that I think it, it, it changes the way you look at things, right? Like I've even done it with random strangers, which probably says a lot about how too personal I become with folks.
0: But when I see
1: <laughs> someone like yelling at their kid in the street, because they took something, I'm like, you know, they didn't know. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like even when you've told them, they don't know. Yeah, <laughs> like yes. listen, yeah. It's all impulse. It's all impulse. Yeah. Or like mm-hmm. when someone explains anger reactions using the Hulk. I always love that example cuz I'm mm-hmm. like that's exactly what it feels like, right? Like Yes. Yes, that's what it that's what it feels like. And so your friend that is always in Hulk mode, it's because all this other stuff has happened that that's his first reaction, first to reaction,
0: right? Right. So
1: let's talk about all the other stuff.
0: Right. And how right. we heal
1: that so that the Hulk can go to sleep for a little bit so that people can learn how to feel like I just think that there's a way that we can communicate with communities to get them to not feel the instant fear that comes with the raising of mental health anything
0: yes yeah right I think like I think it's, yes. it's a
1: fear it's it a is a fear.
0: fear and again I think that's why we try to separate you know violence and mental health I think also we always fear the unknown we don't know why it's happening we don't understand it I think a lot of times you know the, the illness language, I think is a little problematic for some people like, well, I don't want to have an illness. I mean, if you told me I had asthma, which, you know, I was told at one point in my life, I'm going to hide my inhaler. I'm not going to let people know I have asthma and I'm not going to let people know if I have diabetes. I mean, this is a, also human nature stuff Yeah, that, um, you know, there are things that we don't want to be open about because we want to be seen as strong especially as black and brown people, where, you know, folks already have predetermined ideas about sort of where we fall in the hierarchy of things, right? And so the yeah. last thing you want to do is add on to anything that could be perceived as a weakness. And I think that's another thing that kind of gets in the way of us thinking about taking care of our, our mental health in particular, uh, because it can be seen as well, what are you weak? Like, you know, pull, everybody says, pull yourself up. My, my father, you said, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Well, like, I don't have any boots. I don't have any straps. Thank you very much. I don't know how to do that. <laughs> no. What does that mean? I don't know what that means. I have no boots. I have no straps. Thank you. So, um, but, um, you know, I, I also think there's something that we do. And, you know, you, you've talked to me too about this and, and I've done it on occasion. And I think that it is about that un- unapologetically black unicorn thing is, When we stand up for principles in a really righteous way, even though the consequences might be very high risk or high stake, losing one's job, getting kicked out of school. uh, You know, sometimes even, and I've had this when my parents are like, yeah, no, see the door, you, you can go out that <laughs> door, and we will shut it behind you, and, um, you know, change the locks, so, <laughs> and, or, you know, reach behind the car, don't make me reach behind the car, and, you know, that, <laughs> that line, so um, ha- have you ever, have you ever had an experience like that, where it's, like, you really want to stand up for those principles, no matter the, um, the consequences?
1: Yeah, yeah, I feel like I've, I've had them at least once a month, for as long as I can remember my life <laughs> and they can be very trivial down to like flavor of ice cream that we should purchase <laughs> like <laughs> constitutional rights violations. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I find some reason to be in this righteous space where I just don't care about the consequences or I care mm-hmm. little about the consequences. Mm-hmm. I think quite honestly, the one, the one where I feel the most, where I felt the, the best about was when i was a, uh, it was a prosecutor, and I was having a difference of opinion with a supervisor in terms of a witness that was supposed to be brought into a grand jury room, and I molded over how am I going to explain why I don't think we should call this witness, and i you know did the very lawyerly thing where i write out my reasons and I have my argument I go in I make my argument and um my supervisor was like nope we're gonna do it and I was like okay cool you can do that
0: I'm Mm -hmm. not going to Mm -hmm.
1: and I could have been fired for that that's definite insubordination right my boss told me to do something I said no but quite honestly like I was okay with that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was like it more importantly than anything I need to be able to sleep that night Yeah. Like I need to be able to know, you know, full conscious what I did was right by my own living standards. Right. Mm -hmm. Like Mm because I have to live with myself. Nobody else does. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to allow somebody else's decisions to dictate how I feel about myself or what I've done.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I think that I carry that with me that, that feeling with me in all things. Mm -hmm. I was telling you about a argument that I got into in law school with my law professor because of how he was reading a statute Mm -hmm. and I full fledged argument the the kind that you're not supposed to have in law school (laughs) as a law student. And I, as a first year student at that, and I thought I was going to get kicked out of the class because I just wouldn't let it go. And I was like, no, like, You are misreading this. (laughs) And we are going to have this conversation right now because you are not doing (laughs) me a service. Yes. Right? I paid for this. (laughs) I paid for this education. How dare you misread this statute? And how
0: did that go for you?
1: It went really well, right? Like my professor and I ended up being, you know, as I don't know, friendly as you Mm -hmm. can be with a professor. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was the one that told me I was going to be a great prosecutor, which you know, maybe I should have steered clear of that warning. (laughs) But um, yeah, like it just let me, like I can speak up for myself and I'm not saying be disrespectful, Mm -hmm. right? Like you should always walk with respect first, speak from a place of love first in order for you to ensure that your message is received the way you want it to be. But I'm also going to stick to my guns. Yeah, I'm going to correct you when you say something wrong, Mm -hmm. especially if what you're saying is damaging or hurtful to brown and black people. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) I
0: think that that's the that's the power of being an unapologetically black unicorn. Is it's the importance of doing it, and I also think it is about well, how do you do it? You know, know what your values are, know what your principles are. You know, stick to them. I'm always one person. It's like okay, you're at the line. I'm okay now. But once you hit the line or go over that line, that's when it's like, Oh, wait, that's who well, cares is really kind of going at it. And it's like, yeah, I am. The, the consequences are far too high for other people than they are for me. Yeah. Um, and so I really want to think about, I have to speak up. If I don't speak up, who else is, you know, if yeah, nobody you else. Gotta is own it. Up, yeah. Yeah. You got to own it. Right. Own it. You got to yep. be
1: able to dish it and take it
0: Yep. because oh, no it. one's perfect. Exactly. No one's perfect. And I say
1: things that are wrong or inappropriate or whatever all the time, but I can take it. You can correct me. Mm -hmm. I'm able to do the self-reflection. I'm able to grow and learn, Mm -hmm. but you, everyone has to be in that space in order for us to be able to have these dialogues because I'm going to check you. Yes. Right. And, and I'm, I welcome it back. Please do because I want to make sure that I'm doing and saying the things that are going to help black and Brown people. Right, um, right, and if I misstep or if I get something wrong, please correct me. But especially if what you're saying is problematic in a way that is detrimental to someone's freedom or their physical well being, there is no question I am unapologetic about it.
0: Yeah, well, there you go. And
1: I don't really know if I have
0: any anything else to say <laughs> after that. It's like, well, she just spoke her piece. I think we're done. So. <laughs> <laughs> So you know, as usual, you know these conversations are so rich, and it, it really it really helps me think about in my in my you know day to day life in my job role in my life role, other things that I could be doing that i hadn 't really thought about, especially when it comes to thinking about those um, really complex intersections that can start to really resolve some of the higher level uh, problems that we're having in our community, especially around violence. You know, if there's one thing that you want to leave our listeners with about you know, something concrete they could do, um, what would that be?
1: I think if there's something that you want to do in your community, if you're noticing that there's an issue with violence and that folks are either not addressing it or the way that they're addressing it is not right for your community because it, it, nothing is cookie cutter. It has to be right for your community. Speak up and say something. There are going to be organizations across the country in your neighborhood locally that have been thinking about this, are thinking about this and find out who they are. Ask Mm -hmm. around, find out who those folks are and get in touch with them. Be prepared to get your hands dirty um, because this is going to require you to be out in the street and using your voice. But there are ways that you can go about doing it. And there are organizations that have blueprints for you. There are ways that you can go do it yourself. none of this requires money. The money comes, but the conversation starting is free and yes. so go and start those conversations awesome so thank you so much,
0: Chloe for joining me today. Thank this has been and unapologetically Black Unicorn conversation as usual. You just went there and you did it for us. And um, I hope people will join us next week, every week (laughs) for more (laughs) conversations with great unapologetically Black Unicorn. So thank you so much, Chloe.
1: Thank you for having me, Karis. This was wonderful.